Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With One Sonic. High definition audio noise cancelling headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com. This is News Talk. You are very welcome along to Tech Talk. Coming up over the next hour here on News Talk, we'll take a closer look at the proposed online safety and media regulation bill. Could it put an end to online trolling? And I'll be joined by one of the participants from this year's BT Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. But before we get into this week's show, I just want to take a moment to add my voice to the wave of um, expressions of sympathy to the family of Ashling Murphy. Uh, this has been a horrific week. It has been such a dark week for Ireland. Um, and I have spent most of the week listening. I haven't, I didn't think I was going to speak about it. But then literally as the light went on, I um, felt compelled to because Ashling Murphy was 23. I'm 32. I'm going to be 33 in a few weeks' time. And I still don't feel like my life has begun. You know, I have done so much in the last few years, which I'm so proud of. But I, I don't feel like like there's still so much I want to do. There is still so much I want to see. There's so many people I want to meet. There, I, I just have hopes and dreams and all the rest. And I have spent so much of this week just thinking that Ashling Murphy won't get to do any of that. You know, 23, it's no age really. But in that time, she clearly made such an impact on the kids she was a, um, the kids she was teaching, the the music, the people that she met through her music. She was someone who made an impact. I know it's been an uncomfortable week for some because it has stirred up conversations that are difficult to initiate they're difficult to have they're difficult to reflect on but I think we need to have them and before anyone picks up their phone to text the station saying not all men of course not all men the hashtag not all men is actually irrelevant the hashtag should be every woman because every woman does have this in their system whether they acknowledge it or not whether they're aware of it or not you know I have gotten off the Lewis which is how I travel to work and I've walked the long way home because I don't want to go down a particular laneway I have pretended to get a phone call I have sent my location my live location on an app so people know where I am I've walked up my keys, I've dropped back and, you know, pretended to tie my shoelace because I don't like people who are walking around me or near me. Um, and I always thought that it was a me thing, you know, that I, I was just awkward or nervous or whatever. But it's not. You know, I talk to my mum like every day without fail, talk to my mum. And she always ends the call with, be careful. And when I was younger, I used to think, like, what does she think I'm going to do? But as I've gotten older, I've realised it's not me she's worried about in terms of misbehaving or acting out or whatever. It's people around me. And so I do need to be careful about who's around me. And I do need to be careful how I interact with people. Um, And it's exhausting. So while I have nothing profound to say, while I have no solution up my sleeve, 
I just want to acknowledge that I empathise um, greatly with the women of Ireland who are exhausted, uh, who don't want to be having these conversations. It's not cool for us to say that we're scared. You know, it's humiliating and it's degrading and it's depressing. But it's essential that we do because nothing is going to change if nothing changes. Um, and I, uh, I don't know. I just hope that people continue having these conversations long after the headlines stop because Ashling Murphy's name is going to remain, hopefully, in, in people's minds. Um, but that's not enough. We need things to change. We need attitudes to change. We need to call out crap when we see it. Um, and again that's not on that's not just on women I'm so lucky that I have amazing male friends and colleagues who have you know just talking about myself the men in my life have uh, checked in on me they have called stuff out they have defended me when other men make derogatory or demeaning comments to me like I'm a tech journalist this is a predominantly a male um, industry still and so I have often relied on male journalists, um, colleagues, like here in News Talk and Off the Ball, like back in the day when we used to travel. You know, I have had encounters where members of Off the Ball have had to check in and make sure that I'm okay because other people around weren't behaving. Um, and that's not cool. Like I often say that I don't think myself as a as a female tech journalist. I'm a journalist. And I uh, I don't like the idea that I have to seek comfort <laughs> or protection from male colleagues. Um, but that's the way it is. So uh, I'm not really sure. And I'm sorry for, for rambling on this. I said it, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't planned. It was just something that I feel like I kind of wanted to say. Um, so if you are listening to this now and if you're not sure what you can do, um, just listen. Listen back to the conversation that Kieran Cuddy he had with Aideen Finnegan on the hard shoulder earlier in the week. Listen back to the conversation that Nathan Murphy had with Anya Kerr, Alderman Dune and Maliki Clerken. Uh, that was on Thursdays off the ball. You know, listen to the experiences and try to identify ways that you can be better. Like you and I aren't going to solve this. But our day-to-day -day actions matter. Um, and we all have elements of power. Um, and it shouldn't be on women to rectify how some men behave. And it shouldn't be on men to rectify how other men behave. It's up to all of us to work together to try and find a better way for things to be done. Um... So yeah, as I said, deepest sympathies to Ashling's family, her colleagues, uh, people in the area, the children, the parents of those children. It's just an unspeakable tragedy. Um, and I do send my condolences and my sympathies. Um, and I really hope that we continue to have these conversations long after the, uh, the headlines stop. So there you have it. Um, we will 
press on now uh, because that is the way to go. Earlier this week, the Online Safety and Media Regulations Bill progressed another step. Catherine Martin, the minister, uh, very much spearheading this. We we saw some great progress. Uh, But joining me now to talk through what is within the bill and what it means for our young people is Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids. Alex, uh, you are very welcome back to the show. Um, we've spoken many times over the years about the notion of keeping kids safe online. One of the last times we spoke, uh, we discussed the need for legislation, but also for tech companies and social media platforms to do more to keep people safe online. Earlier this week, we saw a good bit of progress in terms of the online safety and media regulation bill. Uh, What's your reaction to that uh, piece of legislation? So we really welcome the fact that uh, this bill is progressing and that we are likely to have it in law, hopefully by the end of this year. Um, There were a lot of positives. There are a lot of positives about the bill. And it was great to see that many of the recommendations made by the Joint Oireachtas Committee uh, during their pre-legislative scrutiny um, are being incorporated into the bill. Uh, One concern remains, um, however, around the individual complaints mechanism, which was not part of the original bill. Uh, We were very much hoping to see that it would be included. And certainly it was it was uh, it made up two of the recommendations from the Joint Oireachtas Committee report. Um, So they've they've not made a commitment on it yet. They've committed to reviewing it further. So they're going to put together an expert committee that will have 90 days to review the matter and report back. So the idea being that that a report back will happen before uh, the bill goes to committee stage. So we'll see what happens, but uh, for us and and others, uh, many others, it's, it's extremely important that that element is included in the final bill. Yeah, I think it was an important day because, as I mentioned there, we've been been talking about this, the country has been talking about this for many, many years, not just in relation to child safety, but individual safety when it comes to online. For, For parents listening to this now, can you just explain what this piece of legislation or proposed legislation will encompass to keep their kids safer online? That's better than what we have as it stands right now today. So this bill is designed to introduce regulation um, and it will put greater onus on the online service providers. So the likes of Instagram, TikTok and so on um, with regard to harmful content on their platforms. Uh, And as you said, it it actually addresses all users, not just children, but, you know, what we're keen to see that obviously the most vulnerable are particularly protected. So it focuses on harmful content, so things like uh, cyberbullying material or uh, pro-anorexia, pro-suicide content, uh, uh, pornographic content, that kind of thing. Um, And the idea is that uh, the companies will be held to account. So if uh, reports are made or if they're not addressing reports made to them or requests for takedown or removal that you know they can be issued with a fine or, or a takedown notice uh, and that this will be monitored uh, through reporting so that is the, the the kind of status of the bill at the moment and if it includes the individual complaints mechanism in the future then that will give greater powers to individual users explain what exactly that entails So an individual complaints mechanism forms part of the Australian legislation. So the the Australians have had this up and running since, I think, 2016 with their e-safety commission. And they have the powers to investigate individual cases. 
And we want to say, see the same uh, mechanism here in Ireland. So the idea would be that if uh, someone has approached, uh, say, a company, so for example, Facebook, and they have requested that a certain co certain content uh, about them is removed or, or that they perceive to be harmful is removed. And if they got no response or an in inadequate response in their view, they could take that complaint to the Online Safety Commissioner uh, and ask for them to review it. And if they agree that it should be removed, then a takedown notice would be then issued to the online service provider in question. So that is that greater degree of power that you, you can take it to this online safety commissioner, as, which will be an independent regulator, and they will review it and determine whether or not it should be taken forward. One of the questions I have on that, though, is that very often in instances where something is either so upsetting or so harmful or so defamatory, that, uh, you know, you'd want to take it down. You kind of want to take it down as soon as possible. Uh, how, I know it still needs to be worked out, but these processes will need to be quick enough, wouldn't they, to try and minimise the damage? Because we, we've seen this with other posts, you know, things that don't uh, fall under a, a breach of the community standards on some of the platforms go viral because people are sharing it because they're so appalled by it, which means more people see it and it becomes a bit of a snowball. So time will really be of the essence here, won't it? You're absolutely right. And actually in Australia, they have time bound takedown notices. So this can, they don't even need to prove that they have exhausted all channels through the platform in Australia. And so it can, it can, it was designed to be a safety net. Uh, and that's what, that's what it, it, it absolutely needs to be. So that the time element is crucial. And again, this is something that we have raised with the department through this process, that, that, that there does need to be a time bound element, because of course, especially when you're talking about more vulnerable users, you, you know, the, the, the idea that it could be removed quickly is extremely important because at, this, at the moment there is none, none of that power. Um, so we also need to be monitoring very closely how uh, the companies themselves are managing their, um, their complaints procedures and how quickly they're resolving them. But certainly when we've had conversations with uh, companies in the past, you know, they have not wanted to emphasize the time element. They wanted to emphasize whether or not it was a successful outcome. Whereas for us, that the time is crucial or can be really crucial, especially for, for a more vulnerable user. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another point I wanted to ask, it was in relation to um, the protection of those vulnerable users. We know that, you know, the, the digital age of consent is in place. We know that the terms of use of a lot of these platforms state that you have to be 13 or 16 to go on. But everybody knows how to do 2022 minus 13 or 16 and set up an account. Is there anything in this uh, proposed bill that, that is working its way through? And again, we did see some great progress this week that would enable better protections for those users or require more parental consent for young people to get onto these platforms. So this was addressed in the recommendations from the Joint Rocks Committee. They asked for that there be a minimum age. Um, and as you pointed out, we do have the digital age of consent, which is 16, and many of the services themselves would have, uh, uh, or if not all of them actually, would have a minimum age requirement. And those things are simply not working. So age verification and age assurance, these are issues that are being discussed globally. Um, and I, I actually, because I haven't seen the final iteration of the bill yet, it hasn't been released um, as far as I'm aware, um, I don't know how they're addressing age within it, uh, but certainly we 
we do need to be doing more and we need to put more onus back on the online service providers to more rigor rigorously look at this because um, there are you know there's definitely more that they could be doing uh, to ensure that children who are using their services are better protected that there are safeguards in place and if children are under their minimum age requirements that they that they that they can't access them in the first place uh, none of which is sufficiently uh, robust at the moment mm. as you say we don't have the ins and outs the full detail and so on but my overarching feeling on uh wednesday when th- when this uh sort of progressed that bit further with Catherine martin leading the way is that it was a good day it was an important day but it's kind of official step one on a 30-step journey that there's still a lot more to do here there's a lot further to go before we can sort of breathe a sigh of relief that's that's right and we do know that regulation works and can work you know you look at across the water to the uk they've introduced this age appropriate design code which has come into force since september and there were a lot of the companies were making a lot of changes in a new piece of legislation i think i think we saw all the major companies you know tiktok instagram uh, google in relation to youtube uh, making announcements about additional safeguards that they were putting in place last year for their younger users and that was largely uh, in response to that new piece of regulation. So we know regulation can work, especially when uh, there is that risk of penalty, uh, and especially if it's it's going to be a substantial penalty. Now, uh, the, some of the penalties that um, uh, Catherine Martin was talking about yesterday were substantial uh, penalties, but I, I guess it has to be seen in the context of the overall profits that those companies are making, which are vast. Um, and she can only issue penalties based on their Irish turnover. Um, so, it, you know, it may not affect them globally, but we do want it to hurt in Ireland if they breach uh, uh, the, the safety codes or if they're found to, to not be um, resp- adequately responsive to um, uh, requests for takedown. Mm-hmm. One thing that, like, again, from what we know about this so far, it does seem like a, a greater onus is going to be put on the platforms and on the companies to react and to take responsibility which I do think is important and I do think it's needed but one thought that kept ringing around in my head um, the other day related to education and I know this is something that you guys work very very hard and consistently on not just for children but for parents for everybody really just to ensure that they understand um, you know how the online world works and how things can go awry and so on do you think we still need to do a lot of work ourselves before we go online as adults, before we allow our kids online, because if this bill does have teeth and if there are ramifications, as you've just mentioned there, of the big fines for the tech platforms, people could find themselves expelled from digital platforms if they're causing hassle, if they're causing havoc and if the, the companies aren't playing ball. So do you think that we need better digital education when it comes to posting, ranting, bullying, acting the agent online, that type of thing? Oh, 100%. And and all of this needs to be happening in tandem. You know, we need the regulation and we need education and we need to ensure that every child is benefiting from a good digital literacy education throughout their, their education, whether it's primary school or secondary school or even third level education. We need to be issuing you know reminders uh, uh, and and supporting children in the online environment. We have to remember at the end of the day, the, these environments were designed by adults for adults. Uh, so there's need, then there needs to be a lot uh, to, uh, we need to make a lot of changes to ensure that they are safer spaces for children to uh, to be in and to access. 
So I would say we need it to be a formal part of the curriculum um, and we need to ensure that parents feel supported so that they can be having conversations at home and they're aware of you know, the, the, the a plethora of, of parental controls and technical options that they have to ensure their children have a safer experience. Conversations are absolutely key, uh, good communication. But I, but I really don't want, think it's fair to put so much onus as it is right now on the individual user. We do need to put some of that responsibility back onto the platforms because we know that even when there are breaches of community standards, there's not always an adequate response to that. So we do need to make uh, a, a put much more responsibility back onto the shoulders of the of the online service providers themselves. Mm, and hopefully that um, that does happen. As you said, it would be great if all these things happened in unison and we could get to a glorious place where people can use the good sides of technology. Because as we always talk about, Alex, when you're on the show, there are so many benefits to technology, but it's just like any other tool in life. It can be weaponized if you don't know how to use it responsibly, and that's not good for anyone. Um, I wanted to talk to you briefly about uh, what we can do in the meantime. So until this comes into play, hopefully before the end of the year, what can parents do to keep their kids safe online? We know that a lot of kids would have gotten you know, their first phone, their first tablet, whatever it was from Santa for Christmas, and they're loving it. But how do we go about ensuring that those kids, regardless of age, are acting in a safe and responsible manner and that we can help them if something goes wrong? Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I would imagine lots of kids got to open up exciting boxes over, over Christmas with, with shiny new devices. And, and as you said, there are many benefits and many opportunities for kids and digital skills are key. They're going to need them in their future education and their future lives. So we do need to equip them. Um, I would advise parents to really go into this with your eyes open. You know, don't have your head in the sand. Look up that device. Make sure that you can uh, you enable the, the parental controls that are available on it. Um, if your child wants to download a particular app or game, look it up yourself. There's so much good advice online. Uh, obviously, there's webwise.ie. There's our website, cybersafekids.ie. Uh, and there's also things like Common Sense Media, which provide really good advice, uh, particularly on apps and games. Uh, they give a kind of parent uh, review and a child review as well as their own expert review. So you get a very good balance uh, of information there. So look, look it up and decide, is this appropriate for my child? Or uh, you know, do, we, do I need to put certain ground rules in place? Uh, where possible, have them uh, using their devices, especially when they're younger, uh, in family spaces where you can keep an eye on them. It's not about sitting next to them you know, 24 hours a day. That's not possible for any parent. But being able to check in regularly, have conversations, maybe have certain things uh, that you've agreed in, in uh, ahead of time, like that you can check friends lists and that there's good conversations around you know, why our friends list should be strictly just the people that we know offline. Um, you know, it's, it's keeping that communication open and, and making it normal to talk about what they're doing and seeing online and, and, and embracing the positives and encouraging them where they, you know, if they're enjoying uh, creating content, you know, uh, you know, do it with them where you can or play the, the games or watch the videos that they, that they enjoy watching, just so you get a sense of, of what they're enjoying about it uh, and, and try and minimize the, the, the less positive uses uh, of, of, uh, of being online. So for younger kids, things like social media really should be limited, ideally, um, or, or again, very much uh, parentally, uh, parent with parental supervision. Absolutely. And I do think that Sorry. there are great resources out there for parents if you want 
to figure it all out. If you if this is your first time dipping the toe into parenti- uh, parenting in the digital age, organisations like CyberSafe Kids, um, you know the Childline Eyes PCC have a fantastic online portal. There are resources out there that you can dip your toe into right now. You don't have to wait for a problem to arise. You can get ahead of it. You can ask questions. The thing that I've learned from speaking to people like Alex over the years is that there's no such thing as a stupid question reach out to these organisations, have the conversation, figure it all out and hopefully, you know, you'll be in a good position if anything were to arise to address it and not make a big deal out of it. Um, Alex, we know uh, when we spoke last year you were running a number of courses um, for parents. Is that something that's still ongoing at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. We've got a range of talks for parents. So everything from that first bit of, you know, how do I, my child's getting their first device or I've got this device for my child. Like, how can I, how can I make sure it's a a safe and positive experience for the family? You know, so we have, we have talks on on that. We have talks specifically on gaming. If you're a parent of of an avid gamer, Uh, we have the more general talks, which just give you, provide the overview. Uh, And then we have a new one, which is a digital media literacy one, which explores that topic in in a bit more detail and, is aimed at equipping parents uh, to support their children on that journey. So yeah, a range of talks on our website, cybersafekids.ie forward slash talks. Um, and we have uh, an email address, uh, office at cybersafekids.ie if you want to get in touch uh, with any questions. Brilliant stuff. Well, look, it's a pleasure as always uh, to talk to you, Alex Cooney. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Tech Talk, Tech Talk. on News Talk with One Sonic. High definition audio noise cancelling headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com, as ever, if you'd like to get in touch. Or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. We are now going to talk about one of my favourite events of the year, and that is the BT Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition. I took part in this event uh, many moons ago now. I was in third year in, yeah, in third year in secondary school, the first time I took part. And in transition year, the second year I took part. And I absolutely loved it. I um, developed the confidence to speak to adults and explain my project. I socialised with people. I, you know, came out of my shell a significant amount because of that competition. Um, And I was incredibly proud to be part of it. And it is one of the things, when I look back on my secondary school education, that really jumps out as being something that um, really aided my development and stands to me to this day. Because if you think about it, I went to a Gwale school, so we call it the Oleog, the young scientist. Um, the thing about the Oleog is that you're developing a, a project and then you're explaining it. That's not a million miles away to what my job is now. Obviously, I'm not developing anything, but I'm explaining things and I'm asking questions and I'm curious and I'm figuring out how things work. So if you have never taken part, I would highly encourage you uh, highly encourage you to consider it anyway. Um, but I am delighted to be joined by Avine Mangan now, who is taking part this year. Avin, you're very welcome to Tech Talk. We've spoken to you before uh, about numerous things because you're very active in the digital space. But uh, you took part in this year's BT Young Scientist and Technology Exhibition. Um, can you just start by telling us a little bit about your project? Yeah, my project, Sepsis Connect, is an app to teach people about sepsis and it can also help them show doctors any symptoms they may be having by using a checklist. And it'll also allow them to log in their temperature, their heart rate and their blood pressure over several days. 
And if, let's say, their temperature is above average, it will show up red. If it's below average, blue. And if it is in the average temperature range, it will show up green. And it'll also allow them to call 999 or call and message a friend and family member using the call button. Amazing. Where did this idea come from? I got this idea um, last year or the year before. I can't remember when I started working on it. But I saw on the news that a child had died from sepsis. And when I did more research about it, I found out it was because not many people are aware of the symptoms and no one really knows much about it. So that's why it's really hard for people to get diagnosed with it. And sepsis actually kills people really quickly. And so how did you go about investigating this? Because as you mentioned there, this is an issue that is known but it's very difficult to track down so how did you go about tackling it? Well I did a survey of first of people my own age and then I did one of adults to find out how much they knew about sepsis already and what surprised me was a lot of adults said they knew what it was which I think 70% said they knew what it was but then when I asked the questions such as how deadly is it um, and what are the symptoms only 20% said that they knew what the symptoms were or that they knew how deadly they were. From there, I did a bit more research into the signs and symptoms. And I also looked at who it affects most. And then I decided I would make an app for it because everyone uses phones these days and a mobile app, more people would use it than if they were to look at a handout or visiting a website. And it's easier to access than either of the things I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And and you have experience with this. Um, to a lot of people listening now, they, they would kind of be stumped at the notion of building an app. Can you just talk us through some of that, the process involved there? Yeah, when I made the app, I used MIT App Inventor and it's block programming. So it's pretty good for beginners who are first are learning to make an app. If you've used Scratch before, the chances are you'll catch on to using App Inventor pretty quickly. And did it take you long? It did take quite a while because I had experience, yeah, but there was some stuff in the app that I hadn't done before. So I had to learn how to do it. So like the color changing part for when you're putting in your temperature or your blood pressure. I'd never done that before, so it did take quite a while to do. How have uh, you found the week in terms of discussing your project with the judges and explaining how it works? I think it's been really cool because I got really good feedback from a lot of the judges on like stuff that I can do in the future or ways that I can improve my app. And I get to tell them what it is as well. And I find that fun. Yeah, you're a great ambassador for young people in science and technology because you're brilliant at explaining how things work. Um, This isn't your first time taking part in uh, the BT Young Scientist uh, and Technology Exhibition. What did you do last year? Last year, I entered my app hospital, Holly and Henry, which is an app to teach children more about going into hospitals so they'll be less afraid of it. And where did the idea for that one come? The idea for that one came from my friend Grace who has SMA and she's in hospital quite a bit and she like most children is scared of hospitals so as you know hospitals are a place for getting better and they shouldn't really be scary for children and children fear stuff they don't know so I thought if I could make a fun interactive app for them like kind of like a game style app 
then maybe that could help them be less afraid because they know what's going to happen. It's a brilliant idea. Um, You seem to have a a real interest in health tech. Is that something that you want to do when you leave school? Well, I definitely want to do technology when I finish school. I like teaching it because I do Kodu Dojo and I used to mentor at the primary school Kodu Dojo and I really enjoyed teaching it to the younger kids and seeing them make projects. So that's something I'd like to do as well in the future. This year, the event uh, took place online as it did last year. How has that experience been? Well, uh, this year it went pretty smoothly being online because I knew how to do it from last year. But last year it was kind of hard because there was all the different calls you had to go on. And then I live in rural Ireland, so we had a bit of an issue with the internet last year and I was nearly late for some of the judging. Oh, that's not good. Um, We've spoken before about the issue with uh, your internet in particular. Um, Does that hold you back? Obviously, last year you were doing a lot of school stuff online. Paint a picture of the reality of connectivity where you live. Where I live, but we have internet now, but we only got that last year. So before that, I would have had to either go do my projects at school Or if I had to work on them after school, I'd have to go sit in the car in the Tesco's car park because they have free internet. And that would have been the only two places really I got to work on my project. That must be so frustrating for somebody like you who's so interested in technology and sees the benefits of it. It was really frustrating. Mm. Um, for anyone listening to this who, who might consider taking part in the uh, Young Scientist next year, what would you say to them? Would you recommend it? Definitely, I would recommend it. It's really fun and it's a great experience as well. Mm. I, I mentioned before, we, we've spoken to you before, um, you're a great ambassador. You do a lot of work in the STEM field, encouraging young people and highlighting how brilliant young people can be when it comes to technology. Do you enjoy that role? Do you like being called an ambassador for young people in technology or do you feel it's a bit of a responsibility? Well, I enjoy it because technology is something I'm interested in and I like encouraging other people who might seem interested in it but think it isn't for them. I like encouraging them to think that they can go do it because really there's nothing stopping them from doing it. Mm, Absolutely. Um, You are in transition year at the moment. How how are you finding that? Uh, it's, It's pretty fun because I get to do work experience and... I get to spend more time working on my projects at school than I would have gotten to do in the past three other years because uh, a lot of we have a class as well that we can just work on any projects. So I get a lot more time to do the stuff I'm passionate about. You mentioned there that you love, um, you know, teaching people how to engage with technology and how to utilize it. But do you think that there's an entrepreneurial spark in you? Do you see this in your future or is it just a hobby horse for you? Well, it's more of a hobby for me. But if I could do it in the future, I'd say I probably would. Brilliant stuff. Well, as I said, it's always a pleasure uh, to have you on the show. But it's also a pleasure to see you go from strength to strength and work on some of the brilliant projects uh, as you have done for the last number of years. Uh, Evie Mangan, thank you so much for joining us here on Tech Talk. Tech Talk. On News Talk with One Sonic. High definition audio noise cancelling headphones designed in Ireland. Visit onesonic.com.
Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. As ever, you can email us techtalk at newstalk.com. And one of the questions that has come in uh, quite a bit over the last wee while to that email address relates to uh, gaming PCs. Uh, We know there's been massive issues in terms of getting hands-on PS5s and Xbox consoles, but there's also a massive surge in terms of um, PC gaming. And I'm delighted to say that Colin Baker of Back From The Future and Laptop Lab joins us now to talk us through what we need to know about either buying a gaming PC or building a gaming PC. Uh, Colin, welcome back to the show. Before we kind of get into that either or situation, can you just explain what's different about a gaming PC versus the normal laptops that people would buy for college or work and so on? There's a a lot of common misconceptions there. And and of course, this is a question that you get asked a lot. We get asked at, at least a dozen times a day. Um, first off, they're very different equipment for de- very different purposes. They're not necessarily better. So it's akin to, say, a Formula One car or a Ferrari or a car designed specifically for speed. Now, those cars aren't necessarily better cars. In some cases, and some car nuts will tell you that a, a Commoner Garden BMW is far better engineered and far better built than a Ferrari. But of course, it doesn't have quite the same speed, power, or cool factor. And it's very similar with gaming PCs versus, uh, say, business or student-type laptops and, and computers. Uh, business-type computers, uh, not you know, excluding heavy graphics, um, are built for resilience, long life, um, and they're built to have fast processors, plenty of RAM, and a decent hard drive. And it's pretty much as straightforward as that. And they have what's called a discrete graphics card, typically. They don't run particularly hot, and therefore they're quite durable and, and, and long life. Gaming machines are what we call live fast, die young machines in a lot of cases, not to be pessimistic. But they have, and they're built around a core of a dedicated graphics card. Now, that card necessitates a few other attributes. For starters, it's a it's like a computer within a computer. It has its own memory, its own processor, and you'll hear it quoted as NVIDIA uh, GTX 3060. These um, acronyms and specs, um, they, they basically define the power and strength of, if you like, that gaming chip, that gaming card, that resource in the computer that's designed specifically for taking all the graphics work that gaming requires and saying to the computer, don't you worry about it, I'll handle that stuff. So you can have two computers identical, ostensibly as you see them, but the one with the graphics card, you try to play games uh, on, let's say, latest role-playing games on the business computer, and it'll just grind to a halt a million miles an hour for everything else, but you throw some games at it and it just can't handle it. And and, and conversely, on the gaming machine, that's when the gaming chip takes over and handles that multiplicity of tasks that that computers need to perform in order to generate that really high resolution, very rapid movement of graphics and 3D bodies around the screen, along with sounds, decisions, and emulations. So gaming machines... Uh, run very hot. Uh, they're very, very, uh, very much built for gaming and for graphics work. So CAD design, 3D design, um, you know, uh, design in, in, in as it pertains to engineering and the likes. Um, but they're very, a totally different animal. We, we've spoken before about, um, 
you know, the, the need, if you are doing anything on your device beyond just, you know, streaming or browsing the internet, you do want to have decent spec inside to ensure that it doesn't grind to the halt. You don't have to be playing a game. If you are working on um, any type of editing software, so obviously when I'm editing this show or if I'm editing video, I want the, the laptop to be able to keep up with me and so on. So you very much pay for what you get or you get what you pay for. Why are gaming laptops so expensive versus the ones that are there for the high performance in terms of productivity? Is it because of those extra bells and whistles that you've just mentioned? Well, for starters, they're, and I mentioned it before, they're not necessarily like people often end up buying the wrong machines and thinking that by buying a gaming machine just for Netflix is a good idea. Mm. It's not. They won't last as long as a, a normal everyday, um, you know, professional or commercial based machine. Um, the graphics card is probably the most expensive denominator in there. Um, but what that graphics card also requires and typically um, users of gaming machines require is a higher resolution screen, for example. If you're, there's no point in having a better graphics card or a dedicated graphics card unless you have a good processor to back that up. No point in having that unless you have a decent drive and a good amount of storage besides. So a lot of gaming machines, you'll see they'll have a solid state drive of 256 or 512. Um, and then the, quite separately, they'll have a spinning, as we call it, an older hard drive of one, two or, or four terabytes. And that's where you would dump all your material and your data. Typically, gamers don't just need the graphics card. You also need more cooling. That graphics card runs many times hotter than a, uh, the, the hardware of a regular laptop or desktop. So that needs more cooling, more metal to dissipate the heat away from the vital parts uh, and bigger, faster, stronger fans to cool the whole apparatus. So the reason for the increased price is, in fact, I often say to people, if you see a gaming machine and it's cheap, Avoid it. It won't mm. last three months it, because the hardware that a gaming machine needs. And when we use the word gaming, by the way, we also include elements of what you said, editing shows, editing graphics, video editing, using uh, various engineering tools and products for 3D modeling and rendering. It's, it's easier just to say gaming because mm. that's about the most demanding and challenging thing you can do to a, 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 a normal consumer available computer nowadays. So what what are we talking about when we talk about price tags for the machines that are worth buying? Um, and I want to I want to just put a, a bit of emphasis on this because people could roll their eyes. I don't know what figure you're going to say, right? But whatever figure you say, there will be people who roll their eyes saying, Do you know what, that is actually an outrageous amount of money to spend on, on a piece of technology. But as we've spoken about before, from a sustainability point of view, you're actually better off investing at the outset rather than buying three or four devices at a cheaper price that end up in a landfill. I see far too many, uh, look, I'll say it, cheap-ass laptops, uh, you know, that look shiny, have a nice little graphic on them. They, they come from ostensibly a good brand. They're pink or blue or they have little uh, funky lights uh, or funky looking speakers on them and they don't last kissing time, Jess. Uh, and, and if somebody, and we see it all the time, people buying those machines, they last eight months, there's a problem, they're going back to the store, they're kicking up, they, they're letting them down at the worst possible moment, they're buying a new one in 18 months. And look, it's, it's a, a classic case of value 
are you getting cheap or are you getting value? And if you are going to get a more reliable experience for a longer period of time, it's clear to see that by spending more or at least getting something uh, better built, better engineered, um, that is going to last longer and perform better. Uh, it can be worth many times that cheap machine. So I have an unusual opinion on this, Jess, and it, 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 it stems from being addicted to, in fact, a PS1 back in the day, PS2 day in college. Um, and I, I shortly afterwards, I realized I was just spending too much time with it. Um, and I ended up building my first gaming type PC from the, the could find online and from friends and from different places and I learned a whole lot about computers from going through that process and the do's and don'ts in fact a lot of my learning came from that experience and it also opened me up to the idea that really computers can do so much more and gaming computers can do so much more than just games so you've got a much broader spectrum of functionality for a gaming computer than you have with a console. You're stuck to games with a console. And so yes, it's cheaper just to go down the road of a console, but the games are more expensive, typically, and then you don't, you're very much restricted in the type of functionality you have. I've, uh, I've built, a, well, I've actually bought and modified a Lenovo gaming machine, and I have spent a lot on it. It's, it's, uh, it's about 3,000 euro for the machine, and I bought a beautiful 48-inch curved widescreen. I've worked long and hard, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to treat myself. Ten years ago, I would have thought, you absolute moron. But now I'm thinking, hey, I do a lot of work on it. I also edit videos. I also edit a little bit of audio. I use some engineering products and programs. Um, and I have a flight sim as well, which I absolutely adore. And some of the, the latest simulators are just incredible. So I get a lot out of that equipment. And I think gaming rigs in general as PCs, uh, you get a lot more out of them than you do a console. Okay, so you, you've brought up there the, the notion of building. Um, is it more affordable to build or is it just that you can customise what exactly it is that you want? So swings and roundabouts, really, and there's benefits and, and, and uh, I suppose, disadvantages to both. For starters, if you buy a reputable factory-built gaming machine, you're going to get a better range of what's called in the industry component matching. Now, that is to say it's quite a discrete study of does this solid-state drive go with this particular motherboard and does this power supply go with this particular drive and motherboard combo and does this type of RAM work better uh, in, in two modules or in one single module? So it's, it's, it's about matching components for optimal performance. Now, if you buy, as I say, some of the Lenovo Legions or some of the HPs or even the Acers, which are quite good value, um, you, you'll typically get a very reliable sequence of component matches. And you don't then have to worry about it yourself. Whereas if you build yourself and you get to, you, first of all, there is a requisite, you really need to study and to look at different reviews. And of course, the world of reviews is mixed as well. There's a lot of sponsored ones. And there's a lot of people who don't have a clue. So getting the right advice and just measuring different opinions out there and where you can get the, the, the right products, you really need to, to, to educate yourself on how they work, how they go together, 
what kind of warranty you're going to get and what are the where to spend your money and where you can save money. So building it is akin to buying a classic car where you really need to know you're going to have to stick your head under the hood. And if you never want to look under that hood, then go buy a factory build and um, get some advice. You still need to do a bit of research to uh, buyer beware and to make sure you're 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 buying consciously uh, and conscientiously. Um, but you're going to get a more, uh, I suppose, a more reliable experience from the get-go and less of an incumbence on you to learn and study and become an expert yourself. So um, I suppose it depends on the person. We get a lot of people coming to us saying, hey, little Johnny wants to build a machine. He's only 13. What do I do? Mm. First of all, I think this is fantastic for little John because little Johnny is is going to, I suppose, concurrently become um, a degree of expert on computers, on components, on hardware, on engineering, on how things go together. It's kind of Lego for the techie. Uh, and, and there's a, a huge learning curve to that and a very enjoyable one at that. And given the importance and prevalence of, of both computers and hardware and electronics in life, uh, even more so into the future, getting little Johnny to do this is a brilliant idea. But you've got to temper that with, well, OK, maybe mummy and daddy uh, don't know uh, a lot about computers and they don't know how to guide them. And it, that, it, that does come down to coming to experts like ourselves. I'll give us a plug, but uh, ultimately any expert that has, and an expert is just someone who has lots of experience. That's all. It's, it's, it's not about talking the talk. It's about doing this on a daily basis, doing this as part of their job, um, asking the right questions and maybe getting a bit of advice and guidance on what to buy, where to buy. Of course, you can do a bit of a hybrid of both, Jess. You can buy a factory built machine and, and safe in the knowledge that that particular machine can be upgraded over time. Mm -hmm. That's the great thing about a PC versus a laptop. Laptops are not terribly upgradable these days. They tend to be built, uh, you know, statically. So with a, an amount of RAM that can't be modified in a lot of cases. Um, whereas desktops, you can replace every part of that desktop, even a factory bought desktop. So that's why I, in the end, bought a Lenovo Legion there recently, because it was so well component matched. The other thing there was I knew that the warranty was simple. Mm -hmm. If you buy lots of different things from different places and something fails and you're not sure what it is, and you've got to go taking it apart and diagnosing and getting advice and figuring out what's wrong and sending something back. And then that turns out not to be faulty. There's a, a bit of a quagmire there as well. So um, look, it is down to doing a bit of research, whichever way you decide to go, getting some expert guidance. And, uh, and, and I think it's a fantastic idea. I personally steer clear consoles because I think they're so limited. Um, and I think despite the fact that gaming rigs can be expensive, you mentioned mine being about 3000 and really treating and spoiling myself, uh, start off around about a thousand euro. I wouldn't go below that mm -hmm. for a whole piece of kit because chances are, there's a number of weak points in it and they've shaved off so many corners um, and so many costs that something's going to fail and the whole lot will come down. Yeah, some brilliant advice there from Colin Baker of Back From The Future. As we've spoken about before, the internet is a great resource. So if you want to start on YouTube, there are so many people talking through what they've done. But then do tag in the experts. Uh, if you do have any questions about this, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com and uh, Colin might even come back in and answer some of them. Uh, but for the moment, Colin, thank you so much for joining us here on Newstalk. Thanks a million, Jess.
And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can, of course, listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. John Friday's up next here on News Talk. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday morning on breakfast. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your weekend.